Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs with uh, Dave Cruz from Madison, Wisconsin. And today we are lucky enough to have Scott Jens with us. Scott is an optometrist and, well, was an optometrist and CEO of Revolution EHR, which provides a cloud-based uh, electronic health record systems for optometrists across the nation. So Scott was a practicing optometrist for many years, for about 24 years, uh, and he recently ended that practice in this, uh, this last December, 2015. And now he's uh, focused on Revolution EHR, uh, where he's been the CEO, CEO since 2006, or at least that's when he joined uh, um, Revolution. So I guess Scott has been a pretty busy guy. So uh, Revolution's uh, located in Madison. So this, Scott is here with me today, so that's a, a special interview whenever it's an in-person interview. So I'm pretty pumped to learn more about Scott and uh, his background and what he's doing now. So uh, Scott, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Dave. So did, well, did I mess anything up on the, the intro there? Were you CEO right away in 2006? Or yeah, I co-founded it. You co-founded it. Technology, my technology Okay, partner. all right. Nice, all right. And so of course we'll get into that, but uh, how did you, uh, yeah, first let's talk about kind of your background before that, um, you know, your optometry background, how you got into it and what interested you. I, I came to Madison after going to University of Wisconsin-Madison and then to optometry school in Chicago okay. at the Illinois College of Optometry. Uh, came back to Madison to start my professional career and um, had some help in uh, financing the purchase of an eye care practice. I've okay. uh, been in practice uh, of optometry in Madison since 1991, as you said, and um, co-joined with a couple of other Madison optometrists to create a group practice called Isthmus Eye Care. Um, we ran that practice really successfully, brought in some new uh, doctors to partnership, um, and, and, and throughout my career I was an optometry association volunteer. Um, I was president of the state association and then was a national optometry volunteer and um, was chairperson of our first ever public health program that we uh, co-founded with former President Jimmy Carter. Huh. My 15 minutes of fame in 2005 was uh, sitting on the couch with uh, Matt Lauer on the Today Show. Um, along with President Carter announcing the birth of this public health program, which provided free eye assessments by optometrists for babies oh, wow. to try to get ahead of, of eye problems that might be um, undetectable by the well-intentioned pediatric eye visits that are done during well baby checkups. And anyway, um, through you know being national media spokesperson and other things, I was traveling around the country seeing how my colleagues in optometry were performing eye exams and was finding that they were all struggling with how to document the eye exams they did, a lot of which includes today medical eye services like glaucoma treatment and um, eye disease management and so forth, and became very passionate about helping doctors figure out how to document their eye care better. Of course, in Madison, we have always had Epic Systems, yes. uh, the world's <laughs> largest EHR company. And it wasn't because of that, but um, I suppose I was spurred a little bit by thinking about how to create a, a system deliverable that would be cloud-based at that time. There was no such thing as cloud. This is 2005. But an but a on-computer-based um, Mac or PC way to document eye care. 
and I came across a friend of mine who was a technologist who was working at Denver's Children's Hospital helping the pediatric cardiology transplant team come up with a way for the transplant physicians to um, be able to log into the records to see how their patients were doing. So he had already been ahead of this idea of remote access to technology and um, he said, why don't we reapply what I've been doing to eye care records? So he and I started the company. In 2006, we incorporated, as you said, right here in Madison. Um, but he, as a UW graduate, a uh, computer science guy, had just moved to Minneapolis for his wife to work on a, a health system there. And so he was in Minneapolis, I was in Madison, and we started a virtual company where um, it was a Madison-based company, but he was technology developing there and I was thought leading it here. And we thought if we built it right for my eye care practice in Madison, this would be a platform that would work for anybody. That was the birth of Revolution okay. HR. So, and before that, so why did you get into eye care? Well, what attracted you way back in 91? Yeah, studies say that like three quarters of eye doctors have had a vision problem as a oh. kid that gets them inspired to go into being an eye oh. doctor. So the actual fact is my brother and I were both blind as bats when we were kids. Really? And I was really compelled by it. My brother worse than me. And um, so it's actually pretty typical that eye doctors go into being eye doctors because of something that impacted them positively by an eye doctor when they were a kid. Interesting. So, but you got your vision back, or how, yeah, how did you, how were you able to see better? Just glasses? Yeah, yeah, like, glasses okay, and contact gotcha. lenses. So you always had, I see, eye correction. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Wow. All right, all right, cool. <laughs> I like it. Um, all right, so that prompted you to get into eye care, and then in 2006, you're like, hey, let's start this, uh, this company. But you're still work. are you still working full time? So I am. Yeah, I devoted my every waking hour when I was an eye doctor to building Revolution HR, okay. and, and so, so much so that at the time my four-year-old child told somebody um, that her daddy was a typist because I was working <laughs> morning and night on my laptop around my patient care schedule, okay. um, building the business plan. We were yep. finalists in the governor's business plan contest in, I don't know, 2007 or something okay. like that. Mm -hmm. Um, here in Wisconsin, and we were very pleased with that. But I was spending every, devoting every minute I could to building, you know, the, the ideas for my partner to build the technology okay. for this software. And we put it in my practice in late 2006 in its earliest form, um, tested it that way. And then I had five other optometrist friends across the country that I knew from my days doing my national volunteer work that also put it in their practices. And then we launched the software in 2007 while I was still full-time eye doctor, yeah. but also CEO of Revolution <laughs> like HR. It. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's such a good, great way to start a company. I mean, you, everybody, like, we kind of talked about this before, that everybody wants to raise a large round and go before they, you know, actually start a business. But sometimes the best way is, like, to have something on the side, right? And you kind of had yeah. this on the side and then kept building. I mean, as far as time commitment, it's ridiculous, but that's what it takes sometimes, it seems like. I, I was happy to spend the time because I knew we were building something that was going to make my business better. And I, again, I assumed other eye doctors' businesses better. I had the fortune of keeping my salary at the clinic. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so it allowed me to invest, you know, pretty much all that my wife and I had saved up yeah. to, into the business. Um, my partner, he worked for free. And yeah. he didn't have another job. He was committing all of his time. Wow. And, hoping that his wife's salary would maintain, which is another way to be an entrepreneur. His version of the story yeah. is, I put my career and alternative salaries on hold. I invested more money, he invested time, and we yeah. went in as equal partners. Okay. So it was a really okay. interesting way to go at it. 
Interesting. And uh, so how, all right, so what, what point did you start expanding beyond uh, your practice and the other five practices? Because like sales and business development, that takes a lot of time and energy. So how did you uh, ex- start ex- slowly expanding? Yeah, we, um, in June of 2007, we attended the National Eye Doctor Conference and we had brought in, in March, um, a sales and marketing director. She had had a history in selling pharmaceutical drugs and pieces of equipment to eye doctors, so she knew how to sell to eye doctors. And we had known her from some past experiences, so we brought her in, and she, um, she was the only paid employee at that time. Um, we also brought in a, uh, one of my old office managers to be our customer support director to support the practices. So there were four of us, okay. and, um, and then there was another optometrist friend that was an advisor to the business who had put some, uh, put a bit of a, a risk in, he, in, in our, our note. We had a line of credit at the bank, and he put his house up against that, as my partner and I did. So, you know, it was a way to sort of float some additional yeah. funds when it was just uh, founder money initially. And um, when we went out in June of 2007 to this conference, then we had somebody who actually knew how to sell and collect leads and manage the prospect line. And that was when we actually got our first sales was in uh, mid-2007, outside of the friends that had started with me. Okay. And what were optometrists using at the time, and and what did you bring that... uh, kind of revolutionized, I guess that's what I remember. I didn't try to do that, but then I realized I was halfway through the word, I was like, oh yeah. I love it. Yeah. What kind of revolutionized the, the, yeah. how they recorded the, it? The, the, even the system I had had in my practice, I was a Mac guy, you know, back in high school in the early 80s, the Apple II was how we were writing basic code uh, programs yeah. to teach us in high school about what was going on in the world of com- advancing computing, because Jobs and Wozniak had sort of gotten Apple II <laughs> stood up. And so I was, I was an Apple guy, and we had run an Apple um, patient management software in our practice that had been built by somebody in Green Bay. We thought that was pretty cool. Now, that's why I wanted the system to be across platforms. Um, just browser-based was the way my partner had said, you know, we'll do this, we'll do it across the web. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and AOL was really the only example of web-based computing I could think of, you know, going back in At time, the time. Yeah. Um, that yeah. everyone was using in 2006, yeah. right? Because this is pre-iCloud, pre-iPhone, yeah. pre-iPad. Um, and, and, uh, and all the eye care practices were using some sort of practice management patient software that had usually had something added to it, like a frame inventory software database or an, uh, a computer-based pay, uh, schedule book. Yeah. Um, and, and these systems that were in optometry had started to include electronic medical records modules that you could clamp onto the patient management software, but they were clunky and sort of bolted together component systems. Um, so there were some software systems in optometry, and our, our marketing, our sales and marketing gurus uh, who we brought in, she identified that the differentiator for us wasn't just that we were online, so to speak, in the cloud, yeah. but that our system was centered around the patient record, and there were no modules to pick. Hmm. We provided everything. As opposed to the medical record being an add-on, we started with the patient visit record and said everything happens off of that. Right? Once you put data in the patient record, the eyeglass prescription, the medication prescription, the next appointment, the optical order, the the claim that you send to Medicare or to Blue Cross Blue Shield was all hinging around that medical record. So the medical record was the core of our technology. And the other thing that differentiated us from the build or the architecture of the software was our patient, our customer engagement model. Everybody else charged in the old fashioned buy workstation. 
which is a very clunky yeah, model, yeah. right? Plus, they had to have servers in-house and other expenses. Oh. We were, hey, whatever computer you have, PC, Mac, doesn't matter. As long as you have an internet browser, you can access our software. So we're just going to charge you on a by-license basis, yeah. the doctor being the license. So if you're a one-doctor, three-location practice with 10 staff, I don't care how many computers you access from, I have to scale my deliverable to you based upon just you, the doctor, being the subscription center. So when we went at the market, we were we did what we called the Costanza. If if <laughs> you know, in in one of Seinfeld's Feld, episodes, George came to the conclusion that if everything he had otherwise done was wrong, he should do 180 degree opposite. It must be right. <laughs> so right. we took everything that was being delivered in optometry and said it must be wrong. Let's do 180 degrees uh -huh. right. Cloud based, no server, by doctor subscription. Yeah. Simple, 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 and we really started nailing it in 2009 and 2010. Okay. Yeah, and at now it's, of course, super, very commonplace, but back then that was a revolutionary, or definitely different. I mean, there's Salesforce, but even Salesforce was just, you know, around 2006, just kind of getting their feet under them and starting to expand. So, yeah, you guys were definitely ahead. Mark Benioff doesn't know how... Um, how much of a model Salesforce was for us? Oh, okay. as, I was, as I was reading, and, and you know, their sort of thing was the word software with the red circle and the line through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That we were really emulating much of what Salesforce.com had done okay. um, in our thinking as we developed our business plan and, and went forward. Um, but you know, one of the challenges for us is that our total addressable market was pretty small, we're kind of a niche vertical, yeah, big, and big, we big. were struggling with fundraising. So simultaneous to bringing on customers was the idea that we were really bootstrapping the thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we didn't get the kind of resources in that uh, the bigger, larger addressable market companies had. So uh, that was a struggle, but uh, we fought our way through it and persevered. Okay, because how many, yeah, what is kind of your total addressable market? How many optometrists are there? Um, there's about 40,000 optometrists, okay. and there are some eye surgeons, ophthalmologists, that find our system potentially compelling. So we were always operating under a less than 50,000 okay. provider market, and we could extrapolate it out through our subscription-based uh, cost concept to maybe a $150, $200 million addressable yeah. market. Still sizable. It was sizable, <laughs> yeah. but a lot of people that were advising me were telling me to repurpose the application to other health professions, say veterinary medicine or dentistry, and, and sort of reapply the technology across other verticals to make the market bigger. That was partly because a lot of prospective investors, particularly angel funds and such, were just not finding enough market to, to be comfortable. Huh? Um, none of them ended up investing, so I'm, I'm actually quite pleased yeah, with that. Yeah, that worked out for you then. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Um, and I'm curious, how long did it take to develop that initial kind of, um, initial product? Because it sounds like you guys had a pretty involved product. You know, uh, I'm sure it's evolved over time, right? You have, I'm it sure has. It's a lot more, I'm curious to see how it's evolved. But kind of that first initial, how long did it take to code up the it, it first took, It took Jim about 18 months. To, wow. To be clear, wow. um, he did work with an outsource shop in Edinburgh, Scotland to build okay. it. And the reason we used that shop is that we founded the original application on Adobe Flex, which was a way to build rich awesome. internet application yeah. technology, sort of web 2.0 technology off of Adobe Flash.
Flash. Well, and it was actually a macromedia shop at the time. At that time that we were contracted with them, um, it was a macromedia relationship, of course, as maybe everyone knows today. Adobe ended up buying them, and at that time, you know, we had to transition over to an Adobe contract. We ended up stopping working with them after that. But um, the original application was all Flash-based, which was great until 2010 when Steve Jobs sort of declared his pissing match with Adobe and said he wouldn't put Flash on an iPad. Um, so we've been repurposing the technology over to HTML5, which has yeah. been necessary yeah. in advancing it anyway. But um, it's always made the application look better and feel and perform better than anything else that any of our hmm. prospective customers looked at. So I'll never be sad about having developed it okay. in Adobe yeah. Flex. Um, but with that being said, um, that original build was 18 months, but it was with that third party you know, to get yeah. us off the ground. We had no other developers. It was just Jim and me. Um, our support person and our salesperson to start. Okay. Just the four of us. Interesting. Um, and can you give a quick overview of kind of the, 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 the current stats? You know, like how many employees do you have and how many customers or whatever you can share yeah. would be. Yeah, just give, oh, happy people, just give people a, an idea. We, we still, we listed our business starting in 2012 in Inc. Magazine, so we had to start to express okay, yep, those yep, things yep, publicly yep, yep, yep. Uh, because we wanted to, you know, help other uh, budding entrepreneurs see how we were doing and what we were doing and actually that year we ended up on number 544 on the Inc. 5000 oh, list. Wow. We just missed the Inc. 500, oh, <laughs> top 500. Nice. Um, but we've fallen since then because it's hard to keep up the trajectory. But um, as of today, we're at about 150 employees. Wow. Um, and uh, our, our total software revenue um, is projected that by the end of this year to be uh, about uh, 13 million. Wow. And is that uh, recurring, a lot of it? Most of it's Most recurring. Of it's we do wow. still re receive an initial upfront fee from our customers to sort of do the initial onboarding and training and some data conversion from their old software. Um, so most of it is recurring. Okay. And your uh, entire focus is still on optometry? Or do you, or it is. Yeah. We, we, again, yeah. we have a few eye surgeons, ophthalmologists yeah. Yeah, on the yeah. system, yeah. but we never took the bait to go to another vertical. I did explore veterinary medicine for a while. Okay, but never, right. never went. Never went. All right. And uh, out of those 140 employees, you know, what uh, do you have a lot of developers, salespeople, or what? what uh, how do you kind of break it down? It's uh, it's it's fundamentally developers. Um, okay. About. Uh, a little over a third of our spend is developers. Okay. Um, we're in excess of three dozen developers, okay. I think. Um, some of those, again, they're, they're across a number of different um, skills yeah. and capabilities, yeah, yeah. some front end, some back end, some data conversion. Then we also have a pretty big um, chunk, about a fifth uh, of our um, spend is on sales and marketing. Okay. And then, uh, you know, we have a pretty robust customer support team. We followed a JetBlue philosophy. All of our customer support specialists work from home. Uh, they do their support over VoIP, you know, phone, uh, internet, Skype, um, et cetera, using Salesforce.com as nice. our, our CRM. <laughs> and, um, and all of them have to have had worked in eye care practices in order to be wow. on the customer support team so they can really quickly identify with the people that call them. Um, and that's been very scalable because we, can, we have a national search. Um, actually, everybody in the company works from home. We're a completely virtual company, but I think from a support wow, side, it's a little crazy because yeah. you know they never really talk to one another, but they do every day through different sorts of technology to keep in yeah. touch. Interesting. I and mean, have you ever thought about the international expansion? Do you think there's any possibility? Or like there is. Okay. Yeah, there is, and we, we made a run at one international play, and particularly in Europe this past 
a year and, and uh, didn't end up making the final cut, but okay. um, we do have some potential opportunities and we're exploring them. We, we have expanded into Canada, which is technically international, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and um, that's been fairly straightforward, although there are some governmental, provincial billing expectations that we had to build into the software. We've been slowly and surely knocking those okay. off to, in order to make our Canada approach. And when the one, the, the one at the Europe, where you're trying to partner with the distributor, is that? Or no, no, we were going to go at it ourselves. Uh, it was, there, I care in the rest of the world is is much more likely to be develop, uh, to be delivered through what we might consider here in the U.S. to be chains. Okay. Um, in the United States, things like Lux, uh, Lens Crafters, which is owned by Luxottica, which also owns frames like Oakley and Ray-Ban, um, you think of them as places where you get eye exams in the mall, but you have your alternative choice of, of getting eye exams from a private eye doctor or a large clinic, right? In, in Europe, for example, it's very common to go you know, into a shop on the street corner and, and that, the doctor's in that shop and that shop is much more of a retail chain. Hmm. Um, so we've, we've looked at, at partnering with a number of them as their institutional software company. Um, but there are some pretty formidable competitors to what we do in Europe and okay. so generally when they look at us they like us but they kind of have picked their their brethren in, gotcha. okay. in that continent. That makes sense. And, and what about the uh, investment? Not, you, know, you told us how you definitely bootstrapped it but uh, what type of investment have you taken on? Yeah we, we um, thanks yeah I, I, Thanks for recognizing it was it was us first. I, I, I when I agreed to do this with you, one of the things I, I hope to accomplish is even if one or two people that are budding entrepreneurs listen to to trust their instincts to bootstrap it and, and put in their own investment as much as possible. I think too often entrepreneurs are looking for somebody else's money to burn on their good idea. And I think it really does matter to prospective investors that you've put your money where your mouth is. So we did do that. Like I said, Jim you know, was putting his career on hold and, and doing this. And, and um, my wife and I put in everything we could. Um, we did a tr pretty traditional friends and family fundraise early in the game. Um, people including my mom nice. <laughs> and uh, Jim's father-in-law yeah. and people like that. Okay. Um, and then uh, we did find a few people, a neighbor of mine who was a surgeon who just seemed to really believe in the idea and a few others. And that was our first round. And then... Um, How much was that for? If you, if you, if it's yeah, we, yeah. We, we raised about $250,000 oh, that okay. way. Okay. Um, so it was a pretty significant yeah. amount of money. Of course, to find people who are were accredited investors yeah. um, was a whole other story because you know you want to be smart about who you do bring in and you do have to meet you know some SEC guidelines when you do that um, so we were able to do that uh, including an optometrist who had been in fact the first person who had prescribed me a pair of glasses um, <laughs> who had become a friend once I got into my professional career so a lot of very trusting people um, who felt like they believed in us and our vision and then after that, we were doing the angel fund uh, play here in Wisconsin and northern Illinois. And to be perfectly honest, um, we had a lot of interest, but nobody would do anything other than give us a solid pat on the back. And, and, and how much revenue did you have at the time when you were? Oh, well, I mean, you know, if you had to get two hundred fifty thousand dollars, perhaps that's more than a lot of folks. But yes, yeah, okay. it yeah. was it was pretty nominal, I think, in yeah. the eyes. You know, it, it's always like when you're raising money. 
you, you get the early investors that, that will trust the idea, then you want somebody to see revenue, and then that revenue never seemed to be enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we were never <laughs> passing muster. And, and so we, we were given some pretty nice invitations to a number of angel funds. Like I said, we covered the gamut across Wisconsin and Northern Illinois, um, but the pats on the back were about it. Then the economy collapsed. And, and you know, so raising money in, in late 08 and early 09, we were struggling. Uh, we were fortunate. Uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin, we do have a community and county-based economic development group, Madison Development Corp., and they were willing to back us. Mm -hmm. And so we needed to find one more substantive investor. And through a series of networking dinners and coffee meetings that I had, I was introduced to a very um, uh, wonderful investor in Wisconsin who many uh, Wisconsin startups know. His name's George Mosier. And George made an introduction uh, for me that helped. George ended up investing, and his investment helped bring MDC's uh, venture debt investment in. So we were uh, just you know, firing on all the necessary cylinders. We certainly weren't hitting any significant home runs, but the, those, those trusted investments were key to us. Um, and then George made some introductions to some other folks, and in Madison I received a couple of investments uh, that were from uh, significantly uh, significant business people who ended up being on our board, and, and I don't mind mentioning their names. Uh, Sean Cleary, whose company Cleary Building, wow. Building Corp. has nothing to do with software, a friend who ended up serving on our board, um, and uh, Mike Swanson, who had had a history in software businesses. And both of them um, also helped us uh, with some other individuals. We ended up only raising money from individuals, and the total aggregate of those individuals ended up being a little short of one and a half million on okay. top of the money Jim and I had put in. Um, so we didn't really raise a lot of money over time. And what year was that? Um, those were closed in 2010 and 2011. Okay, all right. Have you raised any money uh, since then? Well, no, no. Uh, we stopped in 2011, wow. and then um, in 2014, I realized. I mean, we were doing great. Our investors were happy. Our board was happy. Um, we were, you know, going. Some years we had doubled. You know, we we're doing 100% growth, and we were, you know, 70%, uh, still maintaining 50% year-over-year growth. And um, you'd asked about numbers. I mean, yeah. by tw end of 2014, we were slating to do about $8 million in revenue, and, which was you know, another 70% over the year before. Well, that's crazy. Our burn was pretty significant, so the, what we had in the bank left over from 2011 was starting to be exceeded by the monthly burn. So I um, did some reviews of potential investment bankers to represent me on a fundraising mission, either to find some venture capital money or maybe even find a strategic or financial supporter of the business. And by the late part of 2014, that retained investment banker um, found me a, uh, a group of private investors from the West Coast who were interested in um, putting a significant financial investment into the company to keep the culture, keep the people, to, to expand our footprint in the eye care space. Um, and so we did that investment in October of 2014, and, and it's just it's changed the company significantly. So we're very very excited about what we've been doing over the last 18 okay. months. And uh, and you don't have to answer this, but do the founders and the current investors they take some money off the table? Most of them took all their money off the oh, table, right, okay, and right. most of them received uh, something like a six to seven x return on their wow. investment. Six to seven x in like, like three four years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Not bad. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Uh, and and where do you wanna where do you wanna take Revolution over the next uh, five years? And well, before that, actually, I was curious. When did you actually start? Uh, 
go to full-time on Revolution? Um, uh, in late in 2012, my mom passed away, and that was a really big change for me in my life. You know, as an original investor yeah. and as a guidance, you know, sort of light to what I was trying to do, a beacon for me, um, I said, you know, time to simplify. That was her advice, simplify your life. So I followed that instruction and uh, asked my partners at the clinic to let me go down to a day a week. So I was still a pretty significant owner in the practice because my senior partner was just retiring and we had the younger doctors that were partners and they granted that and I'll always be indebted to them for allowing me to go fundamentally full-time. I was working in the clinic a day a week um, but I was working on the eye care business or the software business more than 40 hours a week yeah. and so I was full-time in my opinion early 2013 okay. but I you know if you want to measure it by uh, Monday through Friday work week I, I started that actually for the first time ever uh, this January. Wow. So I've been CEO of the company while I was having a foot in clinical care. I just felt like it gave me a good sense of how it was to really use our product in practice and how to impact the practice and it's taking care of patients yeah. um, by being in the practice. But I was definitely not the kind of participant at the clinic that my partners wanted. And I probably that day a week was wanted more by my software team than I realized. Yeah. So this has been really... Um, a big change, but a good one, a nice, nice next step in my life. And and for the entrepreneurs out there, how much revenue do you have when you went down just one day a week? Um, just because it, I think it's a good story that you know you you uh, hunt on to your other job for a long time, which is interesting. The business was still under $5 million of annual revenue but when I did that. Still, okay, yeah, but, yeah. That's still but I mean, sizable. you know, it is sizable. The yeah. headcount though was, you know, the spend was really easy to spend on the employees. Yeah. It was hard from 2011 to 2013, we were still generally underpaying the executive leadership because, you know, under market, yeah. because we wanted to build a robust team of people and it was always about the team first. Um, the customers are certainly important, but we felt if we treated our team well, that was important. And of course, the first two employees, the director of sales and marketing and the director of customer support that I had hired in 2007, were still and are still with us are now, huh? both the VP leaders of their business divisions. Oh, so, so it was really nice. I mean, so today we've got uh, almost 5,000 eye doctors in the U.S. and Canada using the system. It represents thousands of accounts. Um, on any given day, there are in excess of, of 22,000 users of the software system logging in on a daily basis, uh, pounding away at it, managing their patient care through the software. And um, we have a, a big vision to try to provide those who use the software more services. So some of those are technology modules that they can add on for an additional fee. Early on, we never offered additional modules. Okay. It was yeah, just yeah. one pay, get in. But now we have other things they can add on. Um, we also um, have started to provide human-based uh, business process outsource services. It's very common for medical software companies that do EHR to add on things like revenue cycle management for the clinics that use their software. Um, examples of companies that have done like we're doing include Athena Health um, and others who are serving a different part of the medical community, uh, physicians in particular. And for the optometrists that use our software, they're usually a three to five employee per doctor outfit. They don't have a lot of human resources. And so they would like to refocus those resources on their patients. Why have somebody in the back office waiting on hold with right. Medicare right. to process right. a claim? Um, so we provide that for them, and that has uh, occupied, I don't know, we've got something like 55 of our employees today just doing that oh, back wow. office outsourced service. 
what's nice about it is the, the, the average revenue per customer can be, you know, two, three, four times more when they're using our BPO service than just the software subscription. That's smart. It's yeah. not as sticky and it's not as likely to be, you know, considered as valuable of revenue, but it's still added revenue. It's share of wallet that they're probably spending either on an in-house employer or an outsourced service otherwise, so why not spend it through us? And that uh, business service construct is called Rev360. It's our business service idea that we've just been developing and launching where we tell our customers, we have a 360 degree view of your practice. We, we sit with that data that you are storing. If you want us to leverage it to help you run your business more optimally, we're happy to do that. And uh, we get pretty good penetration of those uh, add-on modules and services from our existing customers. What's an example of a module? Um, we had to, through um, the government certifying electronic health records for compliance with federal standards, we had to invoke a, 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 um, a software technology that communicates from an EHR to another EHR so doctors can talk across different EHR platforms. And this technology infrastructure is called Direct. Um, with a capital D, and we are not natively knowledgeable of what direct communication is. It's sort of like, think of it as secure Gmail from one EHR to another. And um, so we licensed an infrastructure from a company that does direct and then relabeled it RevDirect for our Revolution HR users. So RevDirect is a module, when you add it on to Revolution HR, you pay 5% add-on to your monthly access fee and you get all the licenses for all of your staff and your, for your clinic to have a direct address to send messages to other physicians that are on disparate EHR technologies. And for our doctors to participate in government reimbursement programs, they effectively have to have this add-on module. Um, and so it's been a nice way to you know, sort of get a price increase out of the customer. Um, but to do it in a way where they ha have to have the technology and it's something that they find a value. So the cost to benefit ratio for them is easy to calculate and they add it on. Huh, interesting. Okay. And we're, we're coming to the end here of the interview, unfortunately. Uh, is there, I'll put you on the spot, are there any uh, good, I mean, you've, you've brought up some good lessons, but any other lessons that if you would do it again, um, you would do differently? Um, Anything for other entrepreneurs out there that uh, you would uh, advise? Yeah, probably the biggest learning I took from the whole thing that I would do differently is early on, we were smart in not assigning any of the funds we were hoping to raise to the two founders, uh, Jim and me. Um, we we're going to do it all to customer support and to uh, sales processes and marketing because it is a software business and those are the places where you think you need to spend your money. But the one thing that I was not getting uh, the right amount of traction on was to prospective investors, I wasn't focusing money on somebody who was really a software knowledge leader for the company, mm -hmm. um, somebody who had been in software before. My developer partner was a software guy, but he wasn't a leader of a software company in his past. And I certainly, as an eye doctor, wasn't a software company leader. So it took some sage advice from somebody who said to me, listen, I think your use of funds plan needs to include what prospective investors need to see, which is a good steward of the software business. Mm -hmm. And that ended up causing us to change our business plan and our use of funds plan to include a chief operating officer who would really you know, be recruited from and would really understand running a software business 
once I put that person in place, prospectively, in terms of a definition and title, then investors saw it as a more legitimate software company than just a great idea. So what's, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is, when you have a great idea, as much as you want to lead it, you have to be willing to let somebody else come and run it with you that has domain expertise if you think you're going to obtain the kind of funding that's necessary to go forward. Because it's not enough to just have a good idea and say, I know the domain of eye care. Somebody needed to know the domain of software. And once we did that, um, we really found the interest in investment much higher. And uh, we ended up landing that you know, investment from the necessary individuals that, that helped fund the business. And again, we got the right person early on, and that person hired in 2008 uh, is still with us today as Chief Operating oh, Officer. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, two more questions. One is uh, around mentors, which might be your board, but how, uh, how heavily do you, do you lean on mentors uh, throughout the process? Like, and how often do you talk to them? And yeah, I, I leaned on mentors a lot. I leaned on mentors that were eye doctors who needed us to stay true to certain things that needed to be delivered in the software. Um, I also did, a, like I said, a lot of dinners and coffee meetings with anybody who would meet with me. And uh, there are some people that don't even know they were mentors, but over time I was, you know, studying from them, learning from them, um, you know, like, taking like, advice. Like people, Salesforce. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, and these were real legitimate Madison, Wisconsin <laughs> people who had, had been successful in businesses that weren't software businesses. They were just people who had seen through great ideas to success and um, and so I really leaned on those people a lot and even today I still talk uh, people like to talk to me because they see what we've done as successful and I'm grateful for that but I'm always willing to talk to people who are starting business oddly they're still mentors to me right I mean somebody who's starting a new business that has a great idea that might be 10 or 20 years younger than me, I still find as, as somebody that I can learn something from because I'm still a budding entrepreneur. I, I, we're still building new businesses, business lines, business services, and um, I'm fascinated by how they go at what they go at. So I think the most important thing I've learned is never put, never keep my guard up. I put my guard down and I'm willing to be forthright, willing to be transparent because I think if you give, you're gonna get. Yeah. Well, that's good. All right. And last question. This is more for the Madison folks, or if you're visiting Madison, I, I like to ask, uh, what's one of your favorite restaurants in Madison? That's a great question. <laughs> and you can say more than one. Yeah. I mean, uh, so a, a little secret. When I went to the University of Wisconsin, I worked at a dark um, hole in the wall on State Street called the Brat House. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Today, it doesn't look anything like it did in the 70s and 80s. It's called State Street Brats, but um, that's probably an affectionate favorite because oh, okay. of the time I spent working behind, at that time, a charcoal grill, Ooh. cooking on game days and, and enjoying all the coworkers that I had. So that would be one. And the other, probably mentioned often, but uh, I like the old-fashioned on the square. It's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting place, uh, very busy. Awesome. All right. Well... I think that does it for the interview, and Scott definitely appreciate it. That was, I mean, I, I like your energy, and you know, you've oh, it's great hearing your story. I mean, it's it's quite impressive what you built here in Madison, and uh, I don't think more most people know your story. So I'm hopefully hopefully after this, more people know your story because it's, it. it's it's interesting. And Scott, you're definitely a good resource for uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and so yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks. And uh, thanks for everyone for listening to another episode of Flabber Labs, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks.